0: Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. Well, if we weren't sure if being pegged back from being 2-0 up at Liverpool was a point gained or two points dropped for a title contender, being pegged back from 2-0 up at West Ham is two points dropped for literally anyone. Our Arsenal letting things slip at the wrong time? Would it have been better for Bacayo to put that penalty on target, Barry? And why isn't everyone talking about Aston Villa? They batter Newcastle. Could they even be in the hunt for the top four? Spurs definitely don't want to be a completely characteristic defeat. Their current plan of making sure they concede in injury time Doesn't seem ideal, but wonderful stuff from proving everyone wrong, Gary O'Neill. Brighton win at the bridge, 2-1. It could have been six, something, something, Frank Lampard. Diego Costa's happy. Fulham on the beach after all. And Roy Hodgson is a winning machine. There's a deep dive into a heroic win in the Cambridgeshire Derby. All that, some lovely emails, your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Jonathan Wilson, hello. Morning. How you doing? I am very well. Thanks for asking. Nader Manuaha, Hello. Good morning, Max. Good morning. And hello, Barry Glendinning. Hello, Max Rushton. Let's begin at the London Stadium. Then West Ham two, Arsenal two. Um, and last week, Wilson, we debated whether it was a point gained at Anfield or two lost. This was definitely two lost.
1: Yeah.
2: I mean, I, I, I was always of the opinion that that the result at Anfield was two points dropped. N- not necessarily because the two two draw at Anfield is a bad result, but just because of the nature of a title race that I think people got over-carried away by that eight-point lead because it was having played a game more, so that's five points, having to go to City, so arguably that's two points. City's goal difference is, is marginally better, but with the extra game to play and you expect them to beat Arsenal, so the goal difference is better. So basically, Arsenal... I mean, yeah, this this could could all change if Arsenal get the result at City, but if you if you sort of think City will probably win that, as, as I do and, and did, then Arsenal couldn't afford any slip-ups. Now, that's that's a really difficult thing to do, but what you certainly can't be doing in that situation is chucking away two goal leads. Uh, and what's really odd about both of those games, I mean, they both followed a very similar pattern, that Arsenal were t- miles on top. You're by far the better team for the first sort of half of the first half of both of them, maybe even slightly longer at Anfield. And then somehow just sort of something happened and they they, they lost their composure. The other team came back into it. And that team you'd seen in the first 25 minutes or so just vanished. And then it, the second half of both games ends up becoming pretty ragged, could have gone either way. Um, and you sort of think, well, take each game individually, it draws probably a fair result. But in the context of the season, they're, they're two really bad results for Arsenal, given that they had been teamed up in both of them.
0: Can you pinpoint, Nathan, what happened, apart from West Ham scoring a goal? I mean, if goals change games, of course.
1: I don't know. I think, that, I think that's tough to say. But I think, as uh, Jonathan was saying, like to give up two two goal leads when you are at top of the table trying to win a title like that that is particularly bad like the result at anfield the point at anfield feels great until you realize how it came to be and i think the same was the case yesterday in that west ham game because they were so so dominant but i think a big moment potentially was when the penalty was missed because that sort of energized the west ham crowd and energized the players because that could have been game set and match it felt like but then instead there's more belief and maybe for one or two of the Arsenal players, there was just a little bit more doubt than maybe they've had in times gone by. And I think Arteta basically called it himself and said that they were only really good for 35 minutes. And after that, the control wasn't really there. But this is this is it, playing away from home in the Premier League in the final third of the season when everyone's got something to play for. It's, it's, not, it's not easy. It's not easy. And I think even myself sometimes I can be guilty of just saying, well, that's a great start, so that's how it's going to finish. But... This is, this is why we tune in. Points will be dropped, even if teams are playing well at the start. So, yeah, I uh, I didn't enjoy it because I'm a, of a City persuasion. I just enjoyed it because it just goes to show, like, this is such an interesting time of the year, as we're going to talk about through the other games as well.
0: Um, So are you saying it would have been better if they hadn't got that penalty? I, I, I hate that penalty being given. No, no, no. But, but, but maybe if they hadn't got it, yeah, but if they hadn't got it, then they wouldn't have missed it.
1: Okay, and if they didn't turn up, then they wouldn't have lost. Yeah, that, like, we can do this all day, Max. But I okay. think it's just the fact that, <laughs> as I say, it's because they missed it. Everyone in the stadium probably sensed if that goes in, you're not really going to be scoring three goals against Arsenal. But then all of a sudden, it's like, well, maybe this is going to be our day. When the opposition do something that makes you think it could be your day, that's quite a good spot to be in. So I think that there, because, you know, Arsenal fans talk about the handball and other things and the penalty being awarded, so on and so forth. But That essentially kills the game. And when you don't do that away from home, the opposition will always be encouraged.
3: I think at the risk of sounding pedantic, if they hadn't turned up, they would have lost because I think it's an automatic forfeit, and West Ham get the game, <sighs>
1: three, get so, a three 0 so win. That's real time fact checking. Thank you very much, Barry. <laughs>
2: and they'd have been docked three points, like Middlesbrough. So it would have been even worse. Oh, even better.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Joe
0: Joe wrote in to say, "What time will we have for Nadem's first? So on and so forth, depending on uh-huh. when he gets asked his first question. I'm going to have four minutes after he. Have I said it yet? Have I said it? Yet? I, I don't I think I said it yet. much. Well, I didn't spot it. I didn't spot it. But yeah, producer Joel said we just had a so on and so forth. So. Uh, Many congratulations oh. to Joe! Thank you very you? much. Football Weekly Thank Bingo. You. Um, Thank you,
1: Joe, for listening. It pays when you know people listen. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you, Joe.
0: Barry, what did you? I and mean, what did, from a West Ham perspective? What did you make of this? Because I, I I agree with the others. They were just they weren't
3: getting back. There was no way they were going to get anything from this game, and then they suddenly did. Yeah, after Arsenal went two 0 up, I assumed you know it is a matter of how much they will win this game by, not if they will win this game despite what happened to them last week. And th- th- the penalty they conceded, everything about it was just so unnecessary. You know, what was Thomas Partey doing? Gabriel didn't need to to make that tackle or half tackle, whatever you know, effort of a tackle it was. It wasn't really a tackle, was it? West Ham were slightly fortuitous to get it, and they scored it. Then Partey, I think he, he seems to be dwelling on the, the mistake and makes a couple more errors. You know, they they almost conceded a goal from a free kick he gave away. And the penalty miss then, you know, that if I think if Saka had scored that, that was it. The game was over and, and Arsenal would have won at their leisure. But they just passes started going astray. Uh, Martin Odegaard was really good in the first thirty five minutes, really bad in the final fifty five minutes. And yeah, they, they kind of lost their heads. I mean, the thing to remember, and, and West Ham are to be commended for not giving up, you know, because David Moyes was clearly furious, uh, I suspect, with Saeed Banrama for, for not picking up the runs of, of various players of both goals. But to, to rally and galvanise, and they could have won it. Uh, it wouldn't have been an unfair result if they had won. Uh, that was to be commended but i think if at the start of the season you had offered Mikel Arteta any of his players or any arsenal fan their current position they would not just have snapped your hand off they'd have bitten your arm off at the shoulder to be in the position they are in now and that's what they need to remember and to think about and block out external noise there is every chance manchester city will drop points on the run in but my feeling is now that Manchester you know, Arsenal were missing Zinchenko and Saliba, so Holding and Tierney came in, and that's a quite obvious. They're decent footballers, but that's a quite obvious drop-off in quality. That's never going to be an issue for Manchester City because they have this team built up, and, you know, let's not forget they are facing all these charges about financial fair play, but they have this incredible squad this incredible bench to choose from it's possible they will drop points but I'm I worry that Arsenal are going to to lose their nerve and because they they were showing they looked very jittery yesterday during the second half
2: yeah I mean uh, there's was every chance Arsenal get over 90 points certainly over 85 I mean what are they on now 74 is that right 74 points for seven games to go so even if they sort of stutter a bit, they're going to get over 85 points. 85 points 15 years ago won you the league, and that's that's what's changed in the last decade, largely because the city that you need to get an absurd number of points, and it's not a sort of failing of Arsenal that they fail to get 95 points. If you get 85, that's a really really good season, and you look at the two squads, as Barry says, Arsenal squad has nothing like the depth of City's. So if it runs out of steam a bit in the final quarter fifth of the season. That's that's not really a, a an unexpected
0: thing. Yeah. But it but it's not Nadem How football fans work, is it? Like you sit there going, hang on, but we were 2-0 up at Liverpool and 2-0 up at West Ham. We had this lead and now it's sort of evaporating in front of our eyes. And and like the the chance of winning a Premier League, right, again is hard given the money that City have. I was going to say the money that Chelsea have, but, you know, Lord knows what <laughs> they then buy every single attacking midfielder in the world and be nowhere, but, you know, Manchester United will come again, etc., etc.
1: Um, Yeah, and I think it's, in some ways, not too dissimilar to the talk you probably had last week about is it a good point away at Anfield? You'd say yes until you realise that you were two in a lot. And if Arsenal finish the season and they don't win the league, you know, you can try and be looking for positives, but it was right there for you. It was right there for a long time. And even though City essentially, you know, feel like they're almost turning to this juggernaut as such towards the, end, the back half of the season. It's still in their hands. Arsenal can still win the games they need to win to do it. And if they end up finishing second, they'll see it as a positive overall. But it'll just have that bit of just almost like sadness in the back of your mind because it was right there. You'd almost like dare to believe. And that's why these next few weeks are going to be so interesting.
0: Is it time, Barry, to retire the emergency David Moyes voice note? I mean, a lot of West Ham still want him out. But does he not have a point that if they, if they manage to stay up, and these are two big ifs, and win the Conference League, which they could, they, they drew one or would get on Thursday, then that is that's an amazing season, right? That's for West Ham to win a trophy is extraordinary. I don't know when they last did it. Was it Trevor Brooking's rare headed goal? Is that West Ham's last trophy? Possibly. I'm looking at Wilson. Yeah, it must be. Yeah, it, it must right? be. So quite a long time. Yeah. 1980.
3: Yeah. I would agree uh, if they won the Europa Conference League, that would be sensational for them staying up as well. I don't think anyone expected them to be in a relegation battle. I certainly didn't because I looked at the players that came in during the summer and I had well, I had high hopes for um, Skamaka anyway. And he's been a massive letdown. Uh, I think he's had injury issues, but. Even so, he's been been poor. Uh, so I don't think anyone at West Ham was expecting to be in a relegation battle. It does still, to me, feel like David Moyes has reached the end of the road there. I don't know what his contract is, but even if, if they did win the Europa Conference League and stay up, it you know might be good for him to, to just par company with the club.
0: Uh, let's talk about Man City's win over Leicester, then just to sort of uh, file off the title contenders. Um, John Stones is having a good season, Nadam. I've not seen a centre-back score a goal like that since Nadam and Noah run for Sunderland at Stamford Bridge. Is, is John Stones becoming, what's he becoming? Sergio Busquets? What, I mean, like, not scoring uh, a lot of goals, but like, he's eight, becoming a central eight. midfielder. Relax, okay, okay. Relax, okay, relax,
1: relax, 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 you relax, relax, relax. I think in times gone by, I've seen him play midfield maybe a couple of times, but it's the fact that They've put him in now and they just look as good as they do because there was a point earlier in the season when Rico Lewis was doing that in a similar sort of way, but it didn't feel the same. But I think because John Stones is more experienced and is you know, overall, at this stage, a uh, better player, better defender, and just better on the ball in general. It's like a real threat for City when he does go and do that. And what a time to sort of be in the form that he's in towards this business end of the season where every game is a huge game for them. And listen, we're not going to expect him to hit left foot volleys from 20 yards out every single week. But the fact is he's got a good relationship with Rodri in the middle, but then also a great relationship with the back line when he drops in there as well. And I suppose it's all right when you are when you play for City and you have most of the ball, because you do have time to just go and drift into midfield. Imagine that same equivalent for a side that's got 30% possession. He's like, oh, I'm going to go forward. Oh, no, no, I'll just come back in. I'll come back in. I'll just stay back it's in.
0: Worth, it's, it's worth making the point that Football is very different if you're playing in midfield to if you're playing at centre-back, right? Because if you're centre-back, you've got the whole... You've got, everything is in front of you. You've only yep. got people coming yep. at you from one... You know, you don't need to be, be able to sort of have eyes in the back of your head. Don't make this
1: sound simple, Max. Don't make this sound simple. Don't do <laughs> this. I'm not going to be on air while you while you <laughs> criticise defenders calling it an easy job. But yes, it is very different. It's very, very different. But he's he's such a good footballer that as a consequence, I think he's trusted to go in there. And it's a shame for, say, someone like Carl Walker, who for a while wasn't playing right back because John Stones could play right back and centre mid. And also it's like the same for Tierney's as well. Gone are the days of just being an exceptional fullback. If you can't get on the half turn in midfield, a really good fullback anymore. You know, this is, this is how wild we, uh, the wild the times are right now, but what a player. I think he's getting a lot of um, accolades from city fans always, but people from the outside are really seeing how good a player he is. And the fact that he can go and do that for that side, better play to him. He's not, he's had easy injuries and stuff this season but he's getting into the groove of it. And if he stays fit, then who knows what, how the season could end for them.
0: I'm not sure we need to spend a lot of time talking about Kevin De Bruyne and Erling Brett Haaland both being good and having an understanding. I think everybody sort of understands that that is a thing that exists. I thought it was quite interesting from this game, Wilson, was that Leicester actually had a a, a higher XG than City by the end, which is sort of does show that XG isn't always like the perfect metric because some City sort of fell off the pace and then Leicester had some really good chances, but were always two goals behind what did you it wasn't an easy start obviously for Dean Smith and I guess if you're I guess the comparison is City took an early two-goal lead and that was it compared to Arsenal taking an early two-goal lead and that wasn't it
2: yeah uh I mean was it last season the 6-3 between City and Leicester Uh, which was a, a, a sort of similar type game where City were all over them first half and Leicester came back a bit second half without ever you know gonna overhaul that lead and I think I think I mean I think it's a good point you might make about XG that there's a there's a context to it. So I remember um, uh, a, a coach I know at a Premier League club who you know, will never talk, so I won't say who it is. But there was, was a game his team had. They'd had to bring back an older player who'd just come back from injury, who was not particularly good on the turn at centre-back. And the first half, they got done repeatedly with 3-0 down at half-time, uh, with a quick forward getting in behind this this player. So people might be able to work out which game that is. And then it turned out at the end of the game, they'd won the XG, but they were, they were always 3-0 down. The, the other team, second half, had just sort of switched off, right, we'll, we'll rest. But clearly, had this, player's, this coach's team scored, then the game would have changed. So the fact that, that Leicester didn't score until quite late against City, City never had to change it. They could sort of you know, re- relax as much as you can in a the game. They could uh, not quite play at 100% which will be useful to them in the running. They could rest players, they could take players off. So there's, there's no, even though Leicester won the XG, they, they never, they were not the better team in that game in any, any real sense. So yes, that, there is a context to XG. So we're looking for um, a, we're
0: looking for an old, slow centre-back. Is he on
3: this... Zoom call. Oh, oh, hey,
1: no, Barry, you're better than that. You're better than that. <laughs> okay. Um,
0: do you, uh, um, Barry? Do you? How much do you fear for Leicester? You really do. They don't actually have a terrible run in. They've got Wolves, Leeds, Everton, Fulham, Liverpool, Newcastle, West Ham.
3: They could. They, they there's points out there for them. I, I'd give them every chance. Probably a coin toss, to be honest. They were very much second best in this game. They were always going to be very much second best in this game, but they showed signs of life that haven't been apparent in recent weeks uh, they scored a goal, they hit the post, which could have made for an interesting you know final two minutes or whatever. It was very concertina at the bo- down at the bottom It's now less concertina I think it I don't give Southampton any hope, so it's more or less any two from six is it or five probably two from five throw throw them up in the air and see who you know or throw them down the stairs and see who yeah lands first who sticks to the ceiling whatever um so I, i'd give him a decent chance of staying up i don't know what you, i don't know what analogy you're doing in your yeah, house yeah. anyway I, I think i did several different ones at once as i said to you yesterday about it was nice to
0: see harry Souter next to Erling Braut Haaland, because the first time ever Erling, Erling Braut Haaland just looked like a normal-sized human being. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, that'll do for part one. Part two uh, will be the race to the top four, starting depressingly at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium.
1: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich.
0: Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Stop, he says, will I ever enjoy watching Spurs again? Mark says, the Spurs just trying to win the Everton Cup? I mean, it's real drama and injury time. Richarlison puts that clear header wide. Bournemouth go up the other end and Watara scores. Great composure for him. It is, Wilson, a massive win for Bournemouth. Six points clear of the rele- relegation zone, up to 14th. And they deserved it, not just because... They played well in this game. But, you know, Spurs did them at the vitality in a sort of similar way in injury time. Bournemouth have been pretty unlucky. That Reese Nelson strike in injury time, they sort of deserved a bit of injury time luck.
2: Their season sort of been in four parts. There was the bit before Gary O'Neill took over, which was obviously pretty bad. There was the first bit under Gary Neal, which was pretty good. Then there was another bit that was pretty bad. And then it seems to be been, there was the game against Brighton when there' it was actually it was another last minute goal when Matoma scored. And they lost that game, but they, they suddenly looked much better. And it, I think it, it, it must be, uh, yeah, it was January so it was when the signings started to come in and Wattara I think has been really good for them they've played really well since then and and even games they've lost they, they, they've been competitive they've they played really well at, at Arsenal so they they now look a team where the form they're in they, they just don't look like a like a relegation side and I would say that you look at just the squads you'd say Bournemouth and Southampton probably the two weakest squads in the Premier League Southampton I mean unless something happens very quickly I agree are, are doomed Bournemouth just don't look doomed at all. So I, I think the job Gary Neal has done, the fact that he, you know, he had that initial little impact and then there was a dip, but somehow he's brought it back again, I think that's incredibly impressive. And the other way they pressed on Saturday, uh, as far as, I mean, I, you know, I, was, I was at Chelsea, but um, as far as you could tell from the highlights... They looked at, I mean, certainly far sharper than Spurs. I mean, maybe that's a low bar, but, but it is a low bar.
0: Feels like a low bar, but but I mean that's the good thing, Nadum, is it it would be easy if you're Bournemouth, regardless of which Spurs team you're playing, to think we are not the better team here. But actually you felt Bournemouth went there and went, I don't Spurs really aren't that good. And if you get at them now, it's really easy to, to to have some success
1: well i wouldn't necessarily say easy max that's a bit disrespectful you know there's, there's, there's potential <laughs> you, for success uh, Do you see it i mean there's, really well there's I putt- quite potential easy to for press success them there. <laughs> potential yeah. for success i think bournemouth have done so so well and that game against arsenal when they ended up losing to that recent nelson strike in the last minute of the game the last kick of the game i thought that would be something that would really deflate them but then they then went and beat liverpool at home and that's the type of thing that gives you belief but it surprised me that they're winning away games. You expect most teams down there to be winning their home games, and that's the thing that sort of gives them momentum. But I suppose when you win on the road, you have that sense of belief that you can win pretty much anywhere. And going and playing against Spurs, Spurs, it, we're back here again talking about Spurs. There's such an interesting side because they've been fine at home, it feels like. So I wasn't expecting Bournemouth to go there and win. And then when the craziness happens at the end, the Bournemouth do do it. It's, oh, well, that's, that's really Spursy, isn't it? even they just can't escape that sort of tag, but fair play to Gary O'Neill, fair play to those Bournemouth players because they look, I thought they were finished a couple of months ago. I genuinely thought they were finished based on the squads, as you've mentioned, and just everything about them. I thought now they're going to be done, but lo and behold, they found something. They found that little added sense of belief. And now they're probably one win, possibly two away from being safe, which just goes to show like sometimes just that bit of momentum. It's not necessarily solely about talent, momentum, belief and togetherness. And, yeah, he can go to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and do what teams like Man City can't do, which is get a win there.
0: Now, look, Spurs could have won this game, Barry, but but interesting. I mean, we're not, I'm not the only person to spot this, but Stellini has changed nothing since he got there. Like, I mean, he was already there. Obviously, he's Conte's assistant manager, so maybe it shouldn't be a surprise, but it's the same formation. It's the same players. Okay, we have got some injuries. It's the same sort of slow, ponderous
3: style. Like, what's the point? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I can't answer that. I mean that style does work occasionally, but you need the players to be on their game. And there were far too many sloppy, lazy, careless performances in this game. You know, Davinson Sanchez has kind of been scapegoated by Spurs fans because he was brought on and then off again, but he was far from alone in, in having a bad game. Clement Longley made mistakes. Um, Pedro Porro was at fault for the first and the third goal, yeah. Pedro Porro was poor. Hoiberg uh, seemed to be at the thick, of, in the, the middle of the action whenever things were going wrong for Spurs. So there's, there's a lot of blame to go around. Um, I I have no idea why Stellini hasn't tried to change things. I think Tottenham fans, obviously they want to finish top four, but they just want to be entertained as well. And And watching Tottenham is... Increasingly, an ordeal. You know, it's not it's it's not cheap to go no, to watch Tottenham. It isn't, it, and it's the stadium is. You know, it's hard to get to. It's even harder to leave. And uh, yeah, it, so at least at the very least, give us something to to entertain us while the game is on.
0: Interested, Nadim on the Davinson Sanchez thing. He came on. I think he looks totally bereft as a footballer. He got no confidence. He, you know, and. They changed the shape. It's the first time Stellini changed the shape, actually, by taking him off. But I would have changed shape rather than put him on the pitch at this stage. Whenever you see him come on, he looks like he he, he brings fear into a defence that are already shaky.
1: Well, that's you projecting, my friend. That's how you feel when you see him coming on. His yeah, teammates maybe. would probably maybe. trust him. And it's the I think that's the same as sometimes, you know, when we see a penalty shootout and you see someone walking up and you're adamant they're going to miss. Like when yeah. they score, you don't remember it. But when they miss, it's like, I see, that's the thing. He did the thing. That's fair. the thing I thought he was going to do. And um, he's he's a a good footballer, obviously. And he does feel like he was a bit of a scapegoat yesterday. But I don't watch every Spurs game to know whether he's been good, bad, indifferent throughout his entirety of time at Spurs. But yeah, when you come on and you're involved in two goals and all of a sudden your side's losing, and then you see, you're you're like, you're not going to, you should not see your number come up as a centre-back after you've just come onto the field. You should never see it. And you've got to see him sit down there. He knows every camera on the world's on him. He knows exactly how this is going. Like what's the recovery still in? going to pull him to the side and say it's okay it doesn't matter well of course it matters because you didn't start the game anyway and then he deemed you not good enough to finish it so it's going to be a tough spell for him and I don't think personally he can recover from that from a Spurs standpoint and if I was him I'd be uh, getting ready for the summer because I don't think he's going to be in North London to be honest
0: yeah but it's a really interesting point who comes in as manager and how many players they can move on and if Kane goes just how they how do you change that like Richarlison missed that header he hasn't been a disappointment like could you? Could you? Could he spearhead that team?
1: Can I just say, by the way, I need to try and address this. Okay, I, I, I don't think I fully understand this. So when we say if Kane goes in the summer, is Kane just like making a decision whether he wants to leave or not? Because we also have conversations about how he's being held hostage at Spurs. Is that hostage situation like over in the summer? What What's really happening? Does he actually want to leave? Yeah, Will questions. he be allowed to leave? Don't know. Those are the two questions I really want to know.
2: Could, could we Could we put him in an escape room? Is that, is that the best <laughs> way of resolving it? <laughs> <laughs> like him and Charlie Kane in an escape room. If you can get out in an hour, you can leave. If
0: not, you're stuck here. Let's go to Villa Park, shall we? Um, uh, they have a Newcastle 3 0. Holtender says, Have you noticed Aston Villa yet? R.M. Coles says, Has anyone noticed that Villa are quite good now? Simon, can Villa get top four? Barry, you were very impressed with them, weren't you?
3: I was. Uh, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Um, we've been doing this podcast for a very long time. And. Throughout that very long time, Villa have either been really meh or battling against relegation or being relegated. And this, I think, was the first time I've ever watched a Villa game and gone, my God, they are good. Uh, They eviscerated Newcastle. It was 3-0 in the end. It could have been a hell of a lot more. Uh, Ollie Watkins was outstanding. He scored two. Uh, had one disallowed for an offside, it was the the width of his patella. He brought several fine saves out of Nick Pope. He had a good assist for their other goal, and Newcastle just could not cope with him. They couldn't cope with Alex Moreno either, who uh, took Kieran Trippier, who's a very good player, took him to school. John McGinn was brilliant. Uh, Newcastle had no answers for him. Jacob Ramsey, Emmy Boudier were both Good you know, it was a standout team performance featuring some brilliant individual performances and I I was genuinely shocked by how good Villa were. Now, I'm gonna add in the caveat that Newcastle were uncharacteristically terrible, but you know, they just a lot of that is down to the fact that Villa just wouldn't allow them to get a foothold in the game. Well, so what's
0: Emery done? Compared to Gerard,
3: well, I mean they're, they're much more solid defensively. I mean, you know,
2: while Watkins has been brilliant and while they are attacking well, I think it's a defence that's, that's always been his priority. And it was interesting the the Arsenal game when Martinez went forward for that corner when they were three-two down in injury time, and Emery was furious at that because he saw as giving away cheap goals. His whole thing is is being tight, being compact, not giving anything away. But I, I think the the selection's much more uh, settled. Uh, I think he's maybe slightly benefited by Coutinho missing out so much. There's not that temptation to play him, and I think he creates tactical problems. Gerard always played that very narrow four three three, which I think made them a bit predictable. Well, and you weren't really getting service into to Watkins. Well, you know, they have changed that. You know, Watkins, I think, he you know, he, he his sort of classic goal is a ball play behind the back line and he runs on, but he's also really good in the air. So I think it must be really difficult to know how to defend against them. Whether you you, you play high, sit deep, because he can he can beat you either way. But I, I don't think there's anything hugely complicated. I think it's just getting the basics right. And I think they're in a much lower position than they should have been. Uh, so in a sense, there's a bit of aggression to the mean, but it's it's beyond that. And and yeah, you know, Newcastle have they only lost three games all season in the league. They hadn't. Two of those have been by single goal. One against City was two 0 When Newcastle actually played pretty well the second half of that game. This is the only time of season they've been actually outplayed from start to finish. Uh, so I, th- I think that was a, you know, an exceptional performance.
0: What's the limit for Villa, Nadim? Is the sky the limit or fifth the limit? Mm. You know, could they, <laughs> like they're on such a brilliant run. They're five wins in a row, right? And I think they haven't done that since 1998. I presume Barry was watching football in 1998, but not that Villa game to go, wow, they're good. But um, I don't know who those wins were against. But like where, how far can this, can this go?
1: They're right there right now, you know, so ultimately, they're, they're some teams ahead of them, who very much have that situation in their own hands, and I think Brighton behind them as well, who've played two games less, are right there with them, but it's just, I remember when I was first coming through, like, Villa were good, they had Gareth Barry and people like that, and they were good, and seeing them fifth, sixth, seventh was, like, quite a normal thing, and then next thing, they were in the championship and getting involved in rele- relegation dogfights and stuff like that, so... I, I kind of like it and I, I like what Emery's done and I'm, I was trying to figure out like what would be making a difference because the players are always describing it saying he's he's simplifying it, he's this, he's that, he's fair and I'm thinking is that a slight also to the previous manager? You know what I mean? Like that's the thing which I sort of concern myself with sometimes but what I liked, I think John McGinn had an interview on the weekend and he said that he was fair and I think fairness unites everyone and with Emery walking into uh, to Villa you can see he's like a he's a like a top pedigree type manager and those players weren't there, but now he's almost helping them rise to the vision that he has as a coach. Whereas I think sometimes if you have a manager that sort of matches the situation that club's in, then you can't ever really elevate, but you can see the players are all getting better. Watkins is playing a different style of football now. I think he said in an interview recently that he's not running in as many channels and this, that and the other. Well, some of that comes because they're keeping better possession and he's got time to be in the right areas. Like he's not just an outball for people who are panicking at the back. There's real structure behind him. And that's based on how the manager sees it. And lo and behold, he's scoring pretty much every single week now. So that's Watkins now achieving his potential based on a style that really suits him and suits those around him. And I, I I like it, as I say. I'm sure Birmingham fans will be happy, but Villa, Villa are pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, they're a good watch as well.
0: Um, Mark says, is Todd Bowley's cunning plan to get Chelsea to finish as low as possible in order to get a better choice of player in the draft in the <laughs> summer? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, lack of players is definitely the problem. <laughs> they, 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 you were there. They, they lost 2-1 at home to Brighton. I mean, Brighton could have... Brighton battered Chelsea in this game, Wilson, didn't they? I, I think that's the most one-sided Premier League game I've I, I'm not sure I've ever been
2: to a more one-sided Premier League game. It, it was astonishing how every time Brighton went forward, they looked like scoring. And it was actually quite a difficult match report to write because you're sort of writing this piece saying, Brighton are really, really good, Chelsea terrible. And it was 1-1. And you said, sort of, well, if Brighton don't score again, this piece is going to look stupid. But I don't know. I mean, look, Brighton were brilliant. They, their, their press was brilliant. Chelsea couldn't play through it. Caicedo was sensational. Matoma was sensational. But I also have no idea what Chelsea were doing. So in the in the specific, they had Buddy Shiel and, and Fafana, who kept on following Ferguson, uh, you know, early before he went off injured, and, and McAllister, and because Ferguson often drops deep, that often meant they had this huge gap between the fullbacks who were the deepest lying players, and then those fullbacks are one on one against uh, mainly Matoma, but also Sully March. So if they got past them, they're, they're through, and you, you sort of think, well, what what was what was the plan they're supposed to be, but. I also don't get... You know, when, when Potter was sacked, the only logic in sacking him, given that there was no sense that the players had turned on him, you know, there was, you know, Chelsea's a leaky dressing room, there was nothing coming out there that the, the players all hate Potter. Actually, if anything, quite the reverse. You'd been hearing from from Kante stuff that he really respected the way Potter had given him time to get over the injury. He wasn't trying to rush him back because he needed him. And players still... I mean, they, they may have begun to doubt him, but they still seem basically like him. So you could have let that go until the end of the season. They played well against Dortmund in the Champions League. So the only reason to get rid of him was if you thought you could bring somebody in who would give you a better chance of winning the Champions League. And that's what they did. And they bring in a man who had (laughs) previously coached one Champions League knockout tie, which was lost 7-1 and could have been more. Okay, you know, let's, let's start with a clean slate with Lampard. Let's forget everything that's gone before. So that Wolves game, which I was also at, what's the point of that game? It doesn't matter in the league if Chelsea win that. But well, what they've got to do is get prepared for Real Madrid last week. So he changes the shape, goes to a 4-3-3, and then for Real Madrid, goes to a 5-3-2 again. And then you think, OK, well, maybe you know you had Thiago Silva coming back, Kante coming back. He didn't want to play them, so maybe it was just get that game out of the way to focus on Real Madrid. You then got that game on Saturday against Brighton. He retains five players from the previous Saturday, five players from the Tuesday against Real Madrid. How is that preparing them for Real Madrid on, 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 on Tuesday. In what sense was that game useful for Chelsea? What have they gained from that game? All he did was manage the minutes of some players. So I, I just, I just, I, I can't, I can't, not only are they playing badly, I can't even work out what they're trying to do. And I've got, you know, I've got sympathy with Lampard because I think it's a really difficult situation at Chelsea. I had sympathy for Potter. I just think there's far too many pieces and you don't know what the jigsaw's meant to look like anyway. But I, I just can't get at all the logic of anything that's happened in the last three weeks.
1: It feels weird seeing uh, an old manager come back in to a job which isn't like... There's still something there, as you say, with the Champions League. But that's maybe it's just because they've just got so many players. If they had fewer players, maybe they wouldn't be trying to do all these rotations and all these different ideas. But I'm a sucker, though. Every single week, I see the starting lineup and think, oh, maybe this is the week. Every single week I've done this. and I've got to give a shout to my sister because she laughs at me. She says, like, you are so stupid. And lo and behold the time it's five o'clock on a Saturday she's like you're supposed to be an expert and I'm like I know this is what I do because lo and behold they lose a the game but I'll spin it and just talk about Brighton they were fantastic 26 shots on goal away from home against Chelsea who would have thought that he now feels more comfortable seeing Brighton f- further up the table than Chelsea but yeah Chelsea've got some problems need to get to the end of the season but who knows maybe they'll win against Madrid week. maybe perhaps I mean, it would be. I'm back again. It, I'm back yeah. again. It's, it's like crack. I'm back again. But I know. What you, Give me some more. I know
0: what you mean. You, they've got some good players. We keep saying they've got good players, Barry. And and, I mean, I I, I agree. Nobody knows exactly what the plan is, but it, they may not win another game this season, right? Like that. That they're running is. We've talked about it. They're running isn't easy. Okay. They've got Brentford next, right? Who may be the team on the beach don't know. They've got Forrest at home and they should win. They shouldn't go down. But how can we be saying that when those players on the team, like, they shouldn't. And actually, Barry, can you just talk for a bit about the winning goal? Because it was so brilliant.
3: Julio and Cecil, an absolute rocket from what, 25, 28, 30 yards. Wonderful shot. He'd gone close earlier and I suppose he's just indicative of Brighton's recruiting policy, you know, with this Paraguayan teenager who none of us had ever heard of, uh, suddenly rocks up in Brighton alongside uh, Irish teenager Evan Ferguson, who I hadn't heard of until quite recently. Uh, other Irish fans may, may be more clued in. They, those players will be sold on in time for for huge amounts of money. See also Kauro Matoma, who has been an absolute revelation this season and is almost unplayable. Just defenders cannot cope with his, his cuts inside and, and they can't get the ball off him for all Chelsea are trying to be like Brighton. And I hope Brighton counted their coaching staff uh, as they got on the bus and all their players after the game (laughs) Um, (laughs) for all Chelsea are trying to be like Brighton. They could not be less like them. Um, and, I suppose there's there's a bit of a delicious irony there, isn't there?
0: See Roberto Deserbi taking a register at the uh,
3: <laughs> <laughs> when they get on the bus. Um, Deserbi
2: is really good value. So he um, he was a moment when uh, it was just a, a missed chance, and he, he turned back to the bench. And they had like a uh, what do you call it? A Wi-Fi router on top of the cool box, and he picked it up in both hands, and it was, it was like Moses with the with the tablets of the ten commandments about to smash it on the ground and stopped himself. But then he, he afterwards, he was actually seemed genuinely angry at Nciso. I mean, so Nciso sort of changed the game that uh, Mudrick, who, who actually first off, played as well as I've seen him play for Chelsea, was, was really, you know, he had the beating of Veltman, who'd got booked early. Veltman got injured. Veltman going off meant um, Pascal Gross going to right back, and they looked much more solid with that. And then Nciso then gave him an extra drive through midfield. But Deserve was really critical of Nciso for just not playing after scoring the winner. So, you know, he might as well not have been on the pitch. Yeah, he's got to learn that scoring a goal like that, nobody's going to remember it if you don't win the game. You've got to win the game first. And his, his sort of anger, not not in part mainly at Ancisa, but generally that Brighton hadn't kept going, having gone 2-1 up, that they let Chelsea sort of have a, a bit of possession. And he obviously felt they could have won that game 3 four, one by keeping going. Um, so I, I think he's, he's very good value. He's obviously a brilliant coach, but he's also just quite a comic figure.
0: If as a teenager I'd done that, and, I, and and you were right in the heart of the bright lights of West London. I mean, you've been out-out. I would have been out until maybe... Half 11.
2: But I mean, he was he was chaired on, on the Brighton team's shoulders after scoring the goal. It was like it was like yeah. Pele in 1970.
0: <laughs> yeah. And so
2: you do um, have 20 minutes plus injury time left and some of us have got match reports to say you're going to win the game to, to finish here. So can <laughs> you, you just make sure of this?
0: A lot of talk about how ripped the Brighton physios are. Uh, to they have, um, are massive. Uh, <laughs> flanking Evan Ferguson. And Evan Ferguson, who's not a small chap, looks like a wisp compared to these two lads. <laughs> the one of on the right arms. The size of a normal man's thighs. I guess physios are in the gym a lot, aren't they? They're near a gym. What else have they got to do? It's very strange if all they're doing is just taking creatine and pumping iron. But good luck to them. (laughs) Briefly, Man United won 2-0 for us. Not a a surprising result, I guess. Good week for Manchester United, given the results with uh, Newcastle and Spurs both losing. Bruno Fernandes was brilliant in this game. And his link with Ericsson, who wasn't due to start, was a real joy to watch.
1: Yeah, it really, really was. I think in the build-up to the game, seeing Sabats are going down, you'd be thinking, oh, this is a panic. But then when you bring on Christian Eriksen, that's that's not too bad. Some might call it like an unintentional upgrade. So they moved the ball really well. Fernandez was a constant threat, getting so many shots off, creating chances. And it was just, a, at times, just like a footballing masterclass. Because for Forrest, they're competing, but it just never really looked like they were going to score. If it didn't come from a corner, which they had probably like three, just didn't seem like anything was there for them, but it's a good away uh, win for United, especially given the, the back line that was out there, which makes a lot of United fans very uncomfortable seeing some of those faces. But in the end, they kept a clean sheet. Bit of discomfort at the start when Kyrie Maguire uh, was pulled to the ground and got booked, unfortunately, for uh, the incident. <laughs> amazing foul, wasn't it? <laughs> it? It reminded me of like an NFL like tackle on a running back or something when someone's just running through, just drag him down. But... Great win for them. And now they can try and focus in on that Seville game, which won't be easy, but then in the same breath, they should still win that. But then, as we've just been talking about Brighton, it's a big week because to finish off the week playing against Brighton there at Wembley, Brighton, who I don't think have a game in this midweek, it's great to get those points on the board. And as you say, uh, Newcastle losing United, going three points ahead of them. It's a game that they needed to win. They did win. And yeah, fair play. It's weird, like praising United again, because they've done it. It's getting quite frustrating, these backs.
0: Second goal was lovely, wasn't it, Um, Anthony? Didn't try and bend it in the corner, I think, for the first time in his career. <laughs> and uh, it slid it into Diogo Dalot, who scored his first Premier League goal, I think, on his 100th game. And he was very angry about it. He was almost <laughs> shouting at the United fans, going, see, I told you. And they could have said, mate, it's a 100. It is a 100 games. I mean, I know you're not ostensibly a goal scorer, but that, it's not a great return. Is it? Looper says, I, like Barry, am not of the tin hat conspiracy brigade, but was a penalty against Antonio given and Harry Maguire catching across not given? Steve Cooper said that, that he should have been sent off as a second yellow and it was blatant. The PGMOL said it was a congested, congested area, so not a handball. I mean, I wouldn't have given it, but I, I'm now to the stage where I'm so stubborn about it. I wouldn't give any handballs <laughs> yes. ever in football.
1: I'm with you on that, Max. I, I think that's the right energy. No one's trying to save a ball, stop punishing people for just having arms. I don't like it but also i suppose in fairness the antonio one he hits, hits his arm ref sees it hit his arm and it's like if it goes to video here's a video of the ball hitting someone's arm it would take a lot to overturn it but then with the uh maguire one off the back of it like if you want to be the thing that kills a conspiracy is the fact it's a different referee in a different vr room if it was the same one i'd say pile on that conspiracy this is a pro man united league but no i I know Cooper was upset about it because it seems so so clear. But again, it's another learning moment for us in VR. So I didn't know a congested area meant that it couldn't be handball. did not know that. And I think Maguire himself probably knew you might have been in trouble because when there's that dramatic pause and said VR check handball and you know it hit your arm, you're not going to be thinking, well, this will this will end up all right. Yeah. So it tends not to.
0: So it's congested. So like, like the M4 going into town at rush hour, you just cannot give a half. You pick up the ball, you'll be absolutely fine. Sorry, Wilson. There
2: is a really clear handball in the
0: Chelsea-Brighton game that wasn't given
2: uh, by Pulisic. Like, I, just don't, I just don't get how that's... You know, uh, even under the interpretation of handball that you and I would like, where you actually, you know, your hand has to be doing something stupid. He, you know, he, he was sort of running and sort of poked his hand out to knock it away from Estepena, I think it was. And somehow, <laughs> there was no pause to check it. I mean, I'm I sure it was checked, but there's no sense of, 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 it, of it being taken seriously at all. So Deserby and, and the Brighton fans were, I, I think, totally understand. They'd be furious about that.
3: I mean, there was, in the Villa-Newcastle game, there was an incident where, Alec, I think it was Alex Moreno, tried to send a cross into the penalty area. Trippier was blocked the cross and was standing with both hands behind his back, trying to block the the cross, which he did. It still hit a bit of his upper arm below the shirt line. And I'm going, well, that probably should be a penalty, but you can't give it because he literally has his hands behind his back. And it looks so
0: unnatural. I tell you what, those Brighton physios, those bright, it wouldn't matter with the Brighton physios. Their arms are so enormous; they they, they put them behind the back. They're still just protruding out for miles. Anyway, um, you know, you mentioned that severe game. Man United were pegged back. Another sort of gifable moment for Henry Maguire. A completely un- unfortunate own goal, but it looked quite funny. Uh, which made it 2-2. And uh, Sevilla had a good win at the weekend as well against Valencia, because they're in a sort of relegation dogfight uh, in La Liga. So uh, um, we'll see what happens with that next week. And obviously, like all Europa League games, not give it enough coverage. Uh, That'll do for part two. Part three will do the rest of the Premier League and any other business. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. So Southampton, nil Palace... Two, Peter says, have you heard of this exciting new manager called Roy Hodgson, who seems to have unlocked the attacking talent at Palace? Three wins from three. Last time Palace won three in a row was three years ago under Roy Hodgson. Um, but Nadem helped by, I guess, the fixture list. But, I mean, you can only beat the teams in front of you. And it is, it's pretty wild what he's done.
1: Yeah, it is. And I think Palace knew that this run was going to be quite significant. That's why there was a sort of sadness for some people when Vieira got sacked just before he was going to have the more, most favourable run he's had in probably two months. I think before that, they have been playing against most teams that were in the top half of the table. But in fairness to them, they're winning games and they're scoring a ton of goals as well. The confidence is there. And yeah, Roy, he's, he's finally figured out. After 75 years, he's figured out what he needs to do. I <laughs> you knew he would get there in the end <laughs> no, he understands I think when you bring someone back in that's that experience to a place which he knows so well with the players who are predominantly his like I remember when it felt like Alice would change a little bit in the last 18 months but then as I was looking at the highlights the thing I noticed the most was as he was walking off the field uh, on Saturday he's standing next to like Joel Tompkins and I was like oh isn't that the is this like an old clip from back when oh no this is it now familiar faces just- is, is Joel
0: is Joel Tompkins a, a, like the clone of Joel Ward and James Tompkins oh sorry oh,
1: James Tompkins sorry today? my bad James Tompkins my bad yeah combine the two and it's the same thing it's literally the same, it's literally yeah. the same no, thing I you know just you need mean. to find Scott Dan yeah. now and then before you know it maybe throw him into, okay. <laughs> it's like the boy, the boys are back but yeah there's that sense of familiarity even though there's a change so they're doing it and I'm happy as well because it's Eze that's doing it and he's a good friend of mine so long may that continue in scoring bangers from 25 yards out yes please
0: how good a friend? Is he your best friend in football?
1: No, he's not. No, he's not. But is uh, i You seem I'll a lot
0: take... older than him. I mean, I mean, age is obviously just a number. You can hang out with the is that because he's got an old soul or that you're no, still no, like we, no, young we, and cool.
1: I, I am young and cool to no. Uh but yeah, I'd played with him at QPR and I was his captain. And he was coming through at the time. And he, he was in a couple of years, he probably could have been out of the game because he'd been passed around everywhere. But then that's when he sort of really broke through at QPR. And then eighteen months later, he was in the Premier League under Roy Hodgson, and now, yeah, he's uh, single-handedly keeping uh, Crystal Palace up, which is uh, which is always nice.
0: And actually, he's that that like the way he just he didn't really do anything, but by not doing anything, created so much space for that second goal. Is is genius, right? That's a that is a mark of a really wonderful footballer.
1: It is, but I think that's him. He sort of grew up as like more of like a cage type footballer. So the way that he sees it, he wants to get in the ball. He wants to manipulate sort of, people with his little movements. Not really moving the ball too much, but the shimmies and all that. And then just driving and making a difference. I'm, as I say, I'm delighted for him. And it turns out leaving QPR was a good decision. You <laughs> would have thought that.
3: Is he more or less a friend of yours than Dwight Gale?
1: More. More. Yeah, yeah, come on, relax. He's more, more of a friend. comfortably more, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm enjoying over the years putting together, you know,
0: uh, Nader has top hundred friends in football. Do you think four, it's a hundred? I'm, it. I'm not sure about that.
1: Not sure about that, my uh, friend. Do you reckon it is five? <laughs> five? Like friend friends, I'd probably say. Friend,
0: like proper, like proper friends. We've got Dwight Gale and as a Do
1: you know what? In, in fairness, I'd probably say it's between twenty and thirty people I communicate with still. But that's after sixteen years as a pro, so that's not. It's not actually that many in the grand scheme of things, is it? No. Nah, 16 years worth. Like, I played with a lot of players. Like, QPR, yeah. thing think I played with 100 players there, so, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not that It's not that many.
3: Can you name every single one of them?
2: Yeah, absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> I've been the journalist for 24 years. There's no way I'm
1: friends with
0: 20.
2: Yeah,
1: kids. but it's, you're always the same people, just walking around all the time, trying to avoid each other, <laughs> but always being at the same place at the same time. I know how you guys work now.
0: <laughs> I'm touched that you message me sometimes, but I mean, it's normally work-based, you know. Complaining (laughs) about something. Um, Anyway, are are Southampton? We think Southampton are done, Jonathan. Do we? Yeah, I
2: mean they're they're what they're. Well, they're only four points adrift with seven games to go. So it doesn't take that much uh, for them to. You know, they could could they win four of those seven games? Yeah, I mean we've seen. Well, they get a point against
3: Arsenal next Friday. Yeah, well they've already taken a point
2: off Arsenal this season, haven't they? So it's it's. I, I just sort of think, you know, funny things happen at the end of the season. I mean, yeah, you know, we've seen it with, with Sunderland, suddenly win, you know, four or five of the last eight games and, and a situation that looked desperate can change. And I think the big good thing for Southampton is there's still a lot of other teams down there that they're not relying on one other team to mess up. There's sort of five or six teams who, who who are still scrapping it out. So, look, it, it, I mean, it's obvious they're bottom of the table if they're, they're four points adrift, but uh, they're not
0: doomed, doomed uh, Everton won Fulham three, so Fulham not on the beach at all. Or well, they were on the beach and then popped back into town and Brentford came and took their towels. Um, Everton on their lowest ever points total after 30 games. Neil Mopay, not a natural goal scorer, I would conclude, um, after this game. I really enjoyed Danny Murphy on Match of the Day saying, I was surprised Sean Dyche played 4-4-2. I was like, you can't ever really be surprised <laughs> at that, can you? But I understood, I understood what he meant. Um, uh, what did you make of this, Nathan?
1: I, to be honest, I had Everton winning this game because I did think Fulham were basically down the beach. But it turns out that like Everton, is, Everton is still Everton. Um, so yeah, things like this can happen. I think Fulham without Mitrovic shouldn't be as much of a threat. But yeah, this is this is it when you're down there. Sometimes these games, which people, I think, well, in fairness, I think what makes it worse is I think we've all got this sort of like thing in our minds where we believe we know how a game is going to go. And if you do it from the outside, it's very hard to be someone inside that doesn't see it as well. And they would have been the fans themselves would have thought, oh, we're, we're probably going to beat Fulham. So then all of a sudden losing to Fulham is like, mm. here's a horrible reminder that you're not actually very good so far this season. So I think that's probably what makes it worse because the game, which I'd say most people would have had them winning because they played well against better sides. So to lose and to concede three at home in front of all your fans, you're not exactly leaving there thinking, "Ah, oh, well, it doesn't matter because... As I say, it's a side that was heading in the wrong direction. But Sean Dash is in charge. They're playing four four two. They got a chance. They've got a chance. Mm.
0: Um, I, I mean, I don't know how seismic would it be if they didn't, if they didn't stay up, Wilson. Cause it's just been so long. It would be such an odd season. I can't. I'm not saying I necessarily particularly miss them. Like I don't ever like think, oh, Everton are on the telly. I'm excited. But I feel like it's a constant in life that I would like.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, when did that last go down? Fifty one. Is that right? Yeah. Something it was a long so, time, and it came up in '54, I think, something like that. But but we're talking 70 years, so that's a big but I, I also think their you know their finances are shot. I, I think with Everton, you're not just looking at yes, yeah, Marley, embarrassing they, they, they're going down, they're going to, have to spend a couple of years in the championship or, or 10 years in the championship. It's, I, I think, if they do go down, they are in, in massive trouble. Partly because they've they've already got commitments on the new stadium. Partly because they they've got a lot of debt already. Partly because they've had to do all the change of financial arrangements out that the Smolov's been sanctioned. So they haven't got some of the sponsorship deals that they had before. Uh, but also, I, I think I'm right in saying they've got 150 million pounds of the loans that are if, if a contingent on being in, in the Premier League. I.e., if they go down, they've got to pay them back immediately. So they have to refinance all those loans at a time when interest rates are higher than they've been and when it, you know, if you were somebody loaning money to Everton, you're not thinking this is a Premier League club who's got a guaranteed source of income. You're thinking they're a Championship club, and maybe they go up, but maybe they don't. So that would bump up the interest rate as well. So I, I think their their the financial situation is is pretty desperate, and it get obviously gets worse if they if they do get relegated. So it's yeah, it's it's not just a normal big club going down. It's a big club with financial issues going down, and, and potentially then massive problems.
0: Diego Costa's first goal for Wolvesbury He had a great game. He looked so happy. Sort of a, the, the narrative arc of Diego Costa now being a, a lovable, just a
3: lovable. I'm not, I'm not man. sure it goes that far, but um, <laughs> that goal's been a long time coming. I mean, when Wolves signed him, they were desperate, could not score for love or money. And he arrived and he clearly wasn't in any shape to play top-fly football or possibly even Sunday League football. He was, you know, he had weight issues. Oh, totally understandable because he hadn't played for a very long time. I think at least a year. I
0: mean, it's worth saying, it's worth saying that in Sunday League, there's quite often a really tubby centre-forward who's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Um. So he could have done it. Anyway. But
3: yeah, he's, he's finally fit and match fit and that's good for wolves i suppose i i was delighted to see him score a goal because i was i did think yeah he, there's every chance he will never score again but uh and it's good for wolves to have him um they're they're not in any danger are they but uh yeah, who who doesn't have a grudging admiration for Diego Costa, if not, uh, you know, love.
0: Mm. And what a shit goal it was as well, which is always good. So.
3: <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, two, two very... Uh, there was an element of luck to both Wolves' goals. My man Ethan, uh, I think he inadvertently played the ball into the path of Huang for the second one. And uh, Costa did get a break for his goal.
0: Yeah, tackled it in. But look, seven clear of relegation. They were bottom when Lopetegui took over. So so well done to them. Uh, Leeds home to Liverpool tonight. Um, Johnny says, after this weekend, you surely have to give more coverage to Cambridge and Spurs. Ryan says, been off the panel and the Premier League just to give a one-hour monologue on the greatness of Harrison Dunk, uh, who scored Cambridge's opener against... Peter a oh yeah, huge win in the Cambridgeshire Derby. I mean, it's like river bocker on heat, <laughs> that game. Um, so, look, four, three wins in four, uh, uh, 10 points out of 12 for Mark Bonner's men. We still have hope. The only thing that was uh, sh- confirmed was Forrest Green relegated from League One. But, look, Duncan Ferguson, when he took over, they were miles off the pace anyway. So, look, hopefully they stick with him and he has a chance to bring them back up again. Asher said, did Barry know... Uh, Bowes, is that Bohemians, use a mini Dublin bus to bring the football onto the pitch. And what punishment should the ref face for not giving it the ball? Have you seen this clip, Barry?
3: I have. I wasn't aware that uh, Bowes used a mini Dublin bus, miniature Dublin bus, to bring the ball onto the pitch, but it's quite a Bowes thing to do. And uh, shame on the ref for not availing of the facility. Uh, And kudos to whoever's controlling the bus for sending it in pursuit of the referee and then sort of side-swiping him on the shin as in, come on, come on, give me the ball, give me the ball, that's my job. It's worth uh, digging out.
0: It really is. A couple of emails to finish. Uh, Marcus says, um, Hi, friends of the pod. I was just hoping to share a peculiar occurrence with you I had this week. My amateur Sunday league team had organised a pre-season friendly with a nearby rival uh, in the lead-up to the game. The opposition had been warning us of a new signing who apparently had bucket loads of overseas experience. This is quite rare in my part of the world. Imagine my surprise when this new signing came off the bench with football boots on one foot and trainers on the other. Wearing the number five shirt, I thought he'd plonk himself at centre-back, but instead this man made a beeline straight to the striker position I looked up, and lo and behold, it was none other than Max Rushton. To his credit, he played a hybrid target man, fox-in-the-box position, scored himself, uh, greeted by cheers from... Uh, two people and a dog who came to watch in classic Sunday League fashion. He also subbed himself off with 30 minutes to go and disappeared before I could shake his hand. Uh, kind regards from Melbourne. Um, what a goal it was. Well, what, it was what? So it was why the are you wearing... Than- <laughs> The boot and one foot So the I've trainer, got plantar fasciitis, right? And so I was like, it's my first game back. I only wanted to play 15 minutes. So I thought I'll wear my right boot and I'll just keep my orthotics in my left trainer and just, just test it out. It's a bit sore the next day, but you know, it was easier than Huang's goal, I would point out. So uh, um, if this makes the pod, I'd like a shout out to my friend, George from Luxembourg, who first introduced me to, this, to the pod. His parents accidentally added an S to his name on his birth certificate. Um, so uh, thanks for that. Finally, an email from Simon. Uh, and really appreciate this, Simon. Thank you for writing it in. He says, hi, Max and the panel. I just wanted to drop you an email to you all to say how grateful I am for your dulcet tones over the last year. Last March, my wife and I sadly lost our son, Yonah, at 21 weeks. And since then, the world has felt so different. The episodes of Football Weekly have brought love, pain and tears to a traumatic situation, but it's also warned me on difficult days. Thanks so much for everything you do. On May the 20th and 21st, myself and a group of lads from the Sands Bristol football team, dads and family members who've been affected by child loss, will attempt to walk 50 miles in two days the southwest coast path from Weymouth to Sidmouth to raise money for social events for families affected by child loss in the greater Bristol area. Please see uh, the attached poster. Uh, we'll, of course, be loading up on podcasts to listen to, of which I need to store up some football weeklies. I guess what I'm rambling on about is that the worst things imaginable can happen to human beings, but Barry's chuckle, Nicky's roar, Troy's Troyisms, Jordan's jokes. I mean, I would say Jordan tells jokes, to be honest, but anyway. Did just say his opinions? Maybe, it his yeah. opinions. <laughs> Maybe it's his opinions. Maybe it's his opinions. No, they're not jokes. They're just what he thinks. Um, and Mark Langdon's food choices really brighten our world. Thank you, Simon. I appreciate the email, Simon. I can't imagine uh, um, what you've been through and we really appreciate your message. Uh, And I just wanted to read out the link uh, so that anybody listening could uh, chuck a few quids your way if they can afford to do so. um, uh, Justgiving.com slash crowdfunding slash Sands United Bristol Hike. Justgiving.com. Slash crowdfunding slash Sands United Bristol Hike. Tweet out the details of that as well. I uh, really appreciate you getting in touch. And that will do for today's podcast. Uh, thank you, Barry. You're welcome. Thanks, Nadam.
1: Thank you very much, Max.
0: Thank you, Wilson. Cheers again. For the weekly, is produced by Joel Grove, our executive producer is Christian Bennett.
1: This is The Guardian.